Hello and welcome. I am Joel McReynolds, and you are listening to my preaching podcast. I have the opportunity to share from God's Word, and want to share God's message not only with the congregation of the churches I preach in, but also with you. You can find out more information about me on my website, joelmcreynolds.com, where you can also check out my blog. For now, I hope God speaks to you through today's message. For the past five weeks, we have been with Israel as they've been preparing to enter into the land of Canaan, and then as they entered into the land of Canaan by God's miracle. Now we're at the first major conquest of Jericho in Joshua chapter 6. This battle of Jericho is perhaps the most famous battle recorded in the book of Joshua, even though there's not really a battle that takes place. And despite the old gospel song, Joshua was not the one who fought the battle of Jericho. It was a miraculous act of God. So we're just going to jump into it this morning, beginning in verse 6. We're going to read through verse 5 for now. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do this for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priest shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up, every man straight ahead. The first thing I want us to see this morning is that we fight from victory, not for victory. We fight from victory, not for victory. The first words of this passage show us the resistance of the people of Jericho against the people of Israel. These gates are shut. They're barricaded. No one can come in. No one can go out. What does that tell us? They are prepared for a siege. The people had heard of God's act for Israel in crossing the Red Sea 40 years before. They had heard of the defeat of the kings across their eastern border. And if they had been watching, they would have also witnessed the miraculous event of the crossing of the Jordan River. So if they're in the correct mindset, then they would have responded like Rahab. They would have recognized that God had given Israel this land and that there was nothing they could do to stand against them. And they would have welcomed the Israelites into the city. But the people of Jericho resisted God's purpose. The shut gates are not just a physical defense. It's a spiritual statement. They're being resistant to the plans of God. And this is the way of our world. Since the fall of man, the world has been against God. 
The world rejects his ways. The world opposes his plans. And this grows more evident each day. If you think back just a week ago, last Sunday, I didn't watch it, but it made a big splash in the news this week. The Grammy Awards were shown on national broadcast television with sexually confused men and women strutting around on stage paying homage to Satan himself. CBS even promoted the show on social media saying that they were ready to worship. Now we see who they're really worshiping, and it's not the God of the Bible. The world is against God. The world is in rebellion against him. And as a result, the world is against us, his church. And often it seems like it's winning. The COVID-19 pandemic hit us. And it accelerated patterns that we were already seeing across the United States in our churches. Church attendance was already declining, especially for those who were adults between the ages of 18 and 30. And that's the same group, the same group that is largely targeted by that same group of people at the Grammys. As you look around our church, you maybe feel the same way. I've heard several of you lamenting how different the church feels now compared to 25 years ago. And it's easy to give in to those feelings and to feel defeated. But we're not defeated. In Star Wars, Episode 3, The Revenge of the Sith, see how many nerds we have like me. There's this momentous lightsaber duel between friends turned foes. Anakin Skywalker, who is now an apprentice Sith Lord, and Obi-Wan Kenobi, Jedi Master, they duel against one another on the volcanic planet of Mustafar. And in the duel, Obi-Wan managed to jump over uh, onto a high lava bend. And he claims that the duel is over. Why? Because I have the high ground. When Anakin attempts to fight anyway, Obi-Wan's declaration proves to be true. He's left with severed limbs and ultimately becomes Darth Vader, reliant on a suit to live. Well, God told Joshua that the victory over Jericho is already won. It's in the past tense. It's already completed. Jericho, with its king or military leader and its strong, valiant warriors, it's already defeated and it will fall because God had declared that it would happen. You know, that's one of the amazing things about God. God stands outside of time. Time is another one of his creations. He's greater than it is. It doesn't have dominion over him like it does us. So he knows victory is going to happen because he knows all things. But not only that, he's all powerful. And what he says will happen will come to pass. And he says, don't worry about these obstacles, these walls. They're going down. Those gates... They didn't mean a thing to him. There are no obstacles to God's will. What he declares to be will be. And in John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus declared his victory over this world. He says, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. 
And do you remember what Jesus told Peter about the church in Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19? He told Peter, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, his confession, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The victory is already won. Do you believe it? Do you truly believe it? Do you live according to that belief? The victory was assured. But that didn't mean that Joshua and Israel could just sit back and do nothing. And it means the same thing for us. We don't just sit back and do nothing. We still have to do what God has called us to do. And his instructions to Joshua were quite strange. Israel's warriors were to walk around the city for six days with the Ark of the Covenant as the sign of God's presence with them and the priests blowing seven trumpets. Now that doesn't sound like the best military strategy, does it? But you know, God delights in using weakness and seeming foolishness to defeat his enemies and glorify his name. If you look forward to the book of Judges, Gideon, he had 32,000 or so soldiers, and God looked at him and said, that's too much. Weeded them down to just 300. And with those 300, God gave Israel the victory. How could 300 men defeat all those Midianites? Only by the power of God. And perhaps the greatest seeming foolishness is God's grand plan for our salvation. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The prophet Isaiah said in 55 eight, verses 8 and 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So what is our responsibility? In his 1854 poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade, Lord Alfred Tennyson wrote, There's not to make reply. There's not to reason why. There's but to do and die. That's our position. We don't question God. We just do what he says. And that was the position of Joshua and the Israelites. And so we read in verse 6. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. Then he said to the people, Go forward and march around the city and let the armed men go on before the Ark of the Lord. And it was so that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward and blew the trumpets, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priest who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. But Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I tell you, Shout, then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once. Then they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Verse 12, now Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord 
went on continually and blew the trumpets. And the armed men went before them, and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while they continued to blow the trumpets. Thus the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did so for six days. We need to march in faith and obedience. Despite the seemingly ridiculousness of God's command, Joshua and the Israelites did exactly what God commanded. But there's some details I see here that I think show us some purpose in his instruction. For instance, the seven priests carrying the seven ram's horns before the ark of God. The Hebrew word that's translated seven comes from uh, the root word that means to be full or to be satisfied. So the, the number seven is often used symbolically in the Bible to represent that which is perfect or that which is mature. And it represents God's ability to finish whatever he starts. And the trumpet is often used to announce judgment. In fact, if you look to Revelation chapter 8, verse 6, we see seven angels blowing seven trumpets. And in the book of Revelation, the number seven is repeated several times. You have seven bowls. You have seven scrolls. You have seven trumpets. But each time, there's a pause between the sixth and the seventh. Why? Because the seventh time is the finale. It's the conclusion. It's the end of the matter. So what do we see here in Joshua chapter 6? We see the people of Israel walking in perfect obedience for six days. They walk in silence with only the trumpets sounding forth the warning of that which is to come. There's a six-day delay in the victory. And I think that serves three purposes. The first purpose is that it allowed Israel to see how difficult this task would be on their own. For six days, they inspected the walls of Jericho. Now, archaeological evidence shows that the stone walls that surrounded Jericho were 11.8 feet tall and 5.9 feet wide at their base. And there were two rows of them. As you can see on the screen, there's the initial row, you can see a little people over there on the far right. And then it goes up in embankment, and then there's another set of walls. And remember, the city has battened down the hatches. They are prepared for siege. How could Israel possibly take down this city on their own? So the first purpose was to see the impossibility of the task. The second person is to see... That it allowed God, it allowed God to test Israel. It allowed him to test their obedience and to test their faith. The attack on this fortress required obeying God and depending on him to fight for Israel. It means literally stepping out as they march in faith before they see any cracks in the walls or any other visible signs of victory. You know, sometimes God puts us in impossible situations. You know, you also often hear the, the phrase, God won't give you more than you can handle. That's not in the Bible. That's a misquotation of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And it goes against what actually does happen so many times throughout the Bible. 
If you just read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, look at what Paul went through. Goodness, impossible situations. God puts us in situations that we can't handle. But he doesn't put us in situations that he can't handle. He wants us to turn in faith and respond to him in obedience, just like the Israelites at Jericho. But there's a third purpose also for this, these six days. As Israel's warriors made laps around the city, the tensions in the city must have increased to frightening proportions. Remember, they're already afraid. They're already batting down the hatches. They knew that the God of Israel was a God of wonders, whose power had defeated Egypt, had defeated the kings of the east. They had been witness to Israel's crossing the Jordan on dry land. So what would Yahweh do to Jericho? You know, one of the greatest challenges to belief in the God of the Bible is his apparent brutality in commanding the destruction of the Canaanites. People balk at this. It's an ethical concern. How could a loving God endorse the deaths of so many innocent women and children? Now, we'll talk more about this question throughout this series, but notice something here. For six days, the trumpet came and pronounced judgment, sounded the warning that judgment was coming to the inhabitants of Jericho. Mercy was extended for each of those six days as they marched around the city. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. For six days he offered his grace and his mercy to Jericho. But still the city gates stood closed. And the, most of the inhabitants, not all of the inhabitants, we'll see, but most of the inhabitants stood under God's judgment. So let's continue reading in verse 15. Then on the seventh day they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day they marched around the city seven times. At the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now, we saw this before. We get some kind of parenthetical uh, information here. So he tells them to shout, but they don't shout yet because he's given us more information. Verse 17. The city shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you... Only keep yourselves from the things under the ban, so that you do not covet them. And take some of the things under the ban, and make the camp of Israel accursed, and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold, and articles of bronze and iron, are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. 
We are to shout the Lord's victory. The seventh day came, and the people walked silently for six times around the city. And I think this is a testament to the, to the people's obedience. God could have given them the city at any time. He could have given it on the first day, the second day, the third day. Even on that seventh day, he could have given it the second time, or the third time, or the fourth time. But he chose to wait, and Israel was obedient to follow his timing. They silently marched for six days, then also six times around the city on the seventh day. And then finally, after the seventh round of the seventh day, Joshua told them, shout. Now there have been many who have tried to determine how loud the shout must have been to make the walls fall down. And I will admit, I got caught up in that this week as I was preparing for this. But here's what I realized, and I hope you realize. The walls did not fall because of the shout. It wasn't because of the marching. It wasn't because of the horns blowing. And it wasn't because of the shouting of the people. The power of God brought the walls down. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 30 says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. It was not by faith in the power of their voices. It was by faith in the power of their God. The conquering of Jericho is a miracle of faith. God fought for Israel as long as they obeyed his covenant. The victory can't rightly claim to be theirs. Sure, they received something from it. But this victory belongs to the Lord. Therefore, everything that's in the city belongs to the Lord. By the normal customs of the day, whenever an army overtook a city, they would plunder it and then they would divide the riches amongst the soldiers. But Joshua makes it clear that's not to be the case here. Everything and everyone in the city is under a ban. The word here is kerem. It's a Hebrew word that means set apart or sacred to the Lord. This is the same idea as our tithe. There are 31 battles listed in the book of Joshua. There are 31 days in the average month. And the victory over Jericho was a first fruit of the victories to come. Now, it's not easy to leave the desert after wandering for 40 years to come into a beautiful, fruitful oasis and then turn and give everything to the Lord. But before the walls fell, Joshua made it clear, everything here is the Lord's. Everything in Jericho belonged to God, just as the first 10% of all that we have been given is given back to the Lord for his exclusive use. We give it to him to do whatever he sees fit to do with it. So this idea of kerem means the complete dedication to God of all which was already his creation, but had been used, had been turned against him. All sin before our holy God is theft of his creation and deserves the punishment of destruction. And that's what we see takes place. The people were to take nothing of their own, nothing for their own rather. It was either set apart for destruction 
or it was set apart for use in God's sanctuary. But there's a sense of foreboding, if you look at verse 18, about taking something that's been dedicated to the Lord. Now, we're not going to look at that this week. Come back next week and we'll see what happens regarding that. But by the power of God, the walls of Jericho fell. Israel did just as the Lord had said through Joshua. They destroyed everything in the city except Rahab and her family and the things that wouldn't burn up, the costly metals. Everything that lived in the city was slain by the sword. And in verse 24, we find that they burned up everything else. The city was completely, totally under God's judgment. It was under his wrath. And like Jericho, our present world is already under God's judgment. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Paul tells us we are by nature children under wrath, born into rebellion against God and under his judgment. G. Campbell Morgan said that God is perpetually at war with sin. He will not tolerate it. He will not compromise with it. And Jericho was a wicked city. And its sin was the fuel for the holy wrath of God. And it became a place of his fiery judgment. The New Testament tells us of God's eternal wrath toward unrepentant sin. Hell is called the furnace of eternal fire. God's judgment is called the unquenchable fire. The burning of Jericho is a picture of the judgment of God that will fall on all who reject his son Jesus. But there's good news. Let's continue reading in verse 22 through the end of the chapter. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of there as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. And they also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. As we saw and said a minute ago, they burned the city with fire and all that was in it. Only the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this city Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn he shall lay its foundation, and with the loss of his youngest son he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. We not only tell of the Lord's victory, we also testify to his salvation. Despite God's judgment upon Jericho, we find three elements of God's salvation. In the Hebrew text, there are 102 words that are used to describe the destruction of Jericho. And there are 88 words that are devoted to the salvation of Rahab. Rahab's salvation is just as important to this story as the account of Jericho's fall. 
Now, we first met Rahab several weeks ago in chapter 2. She confessed that God, Yahweh, is the Almighty and told the Israelite spies that she knew God had given Israel this land. And they promised to her her salvation. And here it comes to pass. Now, they had told her, put this scarlet cord in your window so we can find you. They didn't know what was going to happen. But when they came, they didn't need to worry about finding that scarlet cord. There was only one building on the wall that was left standing. And it was Rahab's house. Rahab and all those who were with her were the only ones in the city spared from destruction. Why? Because they were already dedicated to God's favor because of their faith. They responded in obedience to belief that God's judgment was coming. Romans chapter 10 verse 13 says, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Salvation is open to everyone. Whosoever will. Your ethnicity doesn't matter. Your background doesn't matter. Your sexual history doesn't matter. Rahab was a Canaanite harlot. Whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The gospel of faith is open to all, but there must be a proper response. That response is you must repent of your sin and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation. Another element that was saved from the destruction was what we call precious metals, costly metals, silver, gold, bronze, and iron. What's significant about these things? Was it just that they were expensive? God doesn't need expensive things. He's the creator of all things. He created all those. He could speak and make them out of nothing. So what's going on here? I think Paul gives us an insight in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. He says, Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, those three things, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. When Jesus comes back, he comes as the consuming fire. He himself with blazing glory, and he will test all our work. Each one of our works will be judged on the scrutiny of his blazing gaze. Paul's point is that the Corinthians need to build their church on the solid foundation of the gospel of Christ. Now, it would be easy to build a church that looks externally impressive. It's easy to build a church around strong personalities. It's easy to build a church around whatever is the hot cultural and political topics of the day. It's easy to preach therapeutic messages to the emotional and psychological problems of people. In our personal lives, it's easy to build your life on other things. Maybe you build your life on your career. Maybe you build your life on your family. But right now, in our culture, there are many that build their lives on their gender identity or their sexuality. But in the end, all of those things will be burned away. 
When Jesus comes, everything that's not worthy will be burned up. So we must all pray the words of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. The only things we should build our lives and our church on are the things that will endure into eternity. Now there's a final element that was saved. And that's actually Jericho itself. Actually, we know Jericho was destroyed, right? Its destruction was to be preserved. Joshua placed a curse on Jericho. And its destruction was to serve as a witness of God's judgment for all time. Anyone who attempted to rebuild the city would bring God's judgment upon themselves. And the cost would be his oldest and his youngest son. And if we look forward in the biblical narrative to the time of King Ahab, wicked king, during the 9th century B.C., the city was rebuilt. Hael of Bethel rebuilt the city. And scripture tells us that when he laid the foundations of the city, his firstborn died, Abiram. And when he set up the gates of the city, his youngest son, Segub, died. Joshua's, I'm sorry, God's promises never fail. Joshua's curse remained and was fulfilled. God gave his word. That his son would return. And when he does, he will come as the great judge. And he will enact his judgment upon our earth. So my question for you this morning is, are you under God's grace? Or are you under his judgment? Will you be saved like Rahab and those who were with her? Or will you be destroyed like Jericho? I ask you to stand with me as we have a time of invitation and response to the word of the Lord. And if you haven't accepted the salvation of the Lord this day, I pray that you would. Be destroyed. Be delivered from the destruction that is to come. For it will surely come. And for those of us who are here who have already made that decision, already followed Christ, we have friends we have family members who haven't made that decision. So as we have this time of response, if you need to respond to salvation, I'd love to speak with you, come down and talk with me. But for everyone else, think of that friend, that family member who hasn't accepted Jesus. And pray that they would come to salvation. Let's go to him in prayer. Thank you for listening to my podcast. Please subscribe to catch the latest episodes and find me on YouTube. Until next time, go out and pierce the darkness with the light of his word.